Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, everybody. So glad that you're here. Good morning to all of you watching online, to all of you in Port Perry. Good evening to all of you in Bowmanville and anyone around the world. Welcome, not only to C4, but welcome to week two in this mini-series called The Trinity. Uh, earlier this week, I was driving to get some groceries, and uh, as I was going to do a just normal, boring, everyday thing, out of the corner of my eye, I, I noticed a woman who was actually in the middle of a run. She was dressed uh, head to toe in running room outfit, whatever that all is. She had the tracker on the side, the headband, all of it, and uh, she was taking a break in the middle of her workout, but she was so committed uh, to her workout that there was a raise grate, and while she was resting, she was going up and down the grate. Now, uh, I was not, my eye did not catch her because of beauty, because half of you just went there. I forgive all of you. Uh, but it's actually what was taking place while she was supposedly resting. While she was in the middle of this workout, taking a break, going up and down, basically doing some form of lunges, she had a cigarette in her hand and she was smoking. <laughs> now, I want to be very clear, I'm actually not uh, judging the woman. Addiction is difficult, genuinely. But what struck me was just the contradiction of the picture. The absolute contradiction of what I was looking at. And that is the image, actually, I want to start with today. Because that actual image, many of us just laughed at, is us, supernaturally. We've got the right outfit and we're doing the right things most of the time, but while we're doing the right things, we also are doing wrong things and it actually is antithetical to what we're trying to accomplish. And so the reason why we're doing this mini-series on the Trinity is to get the wrong cigarette out of our mouth supernaturally, theologically, so we can know God, worship him in his fullness. See, we are a movement that is relational, we're a movement that's based in relationship. And so we need to know the one we're actually in relationship with. Right relationship is connected to right knowledge. Right knowledge is connected to right relationship. Now, the Bible is our ultimate authority for understanding God. So what does the Bible actually say about him? Well, there are three things that when you read from Genesis to Revelation stand out so profoundly about the God that many of us uh, love, worship, and have committed our lives to. Number one, God is holy. Let's just sit here for a moment on a well-played-out idea, but many of us still have not embraced it in its entirety. Leviticus 9.2, Be holy, God says, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, God is holy in two senses. God is wholly other, meaning he is not like us. He is above us, beyond us. He is creator, we are created. He is infinite, we are finite. He is not part of creation. He is outside of creation. He is wholly other. But God also is holy, meaning without sin, the Bible says God hates sin. Sin cannot be in his presence. He is such perfection, such beauty, such light, that sin burns in his presence. So God is holy. God is perfect. God is uncreated. But that is not the end of the story about God. See, God is not just holy. God also is love. So the grounding... The very DNA, the essence of God is not just holy or just love. You'll hear lots of preachers these days, even within Toronto, say, oh, God is love and out of his love, holiness comes. Or God is holy and out of his holiness, love comes. No, no, no. God in his DNA, at the center of him is holy love, all mixed together. God was holy love, or holy love before us, uh, before creation, before time. God is holy love right now, and God will always be holy love tomorrow. Let's sit on that word love. 
I mean, it's a very Christian thing to say God is love. And when we say God is love, we always start with us. God loves us. God loves me. God cares for me. God cares for us. God will provide for us. He'll overcome because our God is love. Is any of that wrong? No, it's not wrong at all. But here's the problem. Here's the cigarette hanging out in our mouth when we say things like that. When you talk about God, we are never the epicenter of the conversation. He is. When we hear God is love, we think it's about us. No, no. God is love reveals something about him first, way before we're on the scene. Gerald Bray wrote these words, the concept of love implies that there must be something or someone to be loved. Of course, it's possible to argue that even if God were a single person, he'd be self-aware and could love himself. But, that, that, but, that, but the biblical idea of love is something more than self-esteem. The love in which the Bible speaks about is a, not a self-centered kind of preening in front of the mirror. It is a concern for someone else. God is love implies something about him, not us. Outside of time and space, before there was a before, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have always coexisted and have always been in relationship equally. So when you hear the phrase, God is love, it implies a plurality within himself. The Father has always loved Jesus forever. Jesus the Son has always loved the Holy Spirit forever. The Holy Spirit has always loved the Father forever. The dance is never ending. The circle is unbreakable, as another wrote, because God is personal and not impersonal. God exists as the mystery of persons in community. So God is holy and God is love. And as we just heard right now and we heard all of last week's message, God is one God. There is only one God. There are not many yet within his oneness. There are three that make up the one. Now, let me say this with authority and boldness again. If you call yourself a Christian today and you have a basic understanding of the Trinity and you reject it, you are not a Christian. This is not a secondary thing we all get to say agree to disagree on. This is our faith. Others of us don't have a full understanding of a God that we worship and give to and love and hope in. Karl Barth said these words, the doctrine of the Trinity is what basically distinguishes the Christian doctrine of God as Christian. This is why we're Swishelay and not McDonald's. It's a different thing. This isn't just how we talk about God right. This is actually how we intimately know God right. And this is how we learn to distinguish false versions of God that are demonically inspired or humanly invented. The Trinity is the red line between falseness and truth when it comes to the epicenter of our movement, God. One person wrote this, within God's own mysterious being, God is Father and Son and Spirit. These designations are just the ways in which God are God. Within the Godhead, there are three persons who are neither three gods nor three parts of God, but co-equally, and here's the critical phrase, and co-eternally God. So God is holy, and God is love, and there is only one God, yet within the oneness there is community. And when God himself decided to create, and not just create, when God himself decided to enter into his creation, the unity of the Trinity never changes. This is so critical. We get this today. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are equal, but the persons in the Trinity willingly take on different roles. God within himself shows us love by mutual submission. Jesus submits to the Father, and the Holy Spirit submits to the Father in Jesus. So now God, 
One God, three forever in community, mutually indwelling, mutually loving, mutually dancing, being, being loved and moved within himself and beyond himself. He then begins to act. And only then do we begin to glimpse the simplicity and complexity and the fullness of God when we look at creation, salvation, and empowerment. Let's go back to the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The psalmist recorded it this way in Psalm 33, 6. By the word of God, the heavens were made. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And Jesus, who is the word, was with God in the beginning. Now, when you begin to start stringing and pairing all the creation accounts together, what you begin to see is the fullness of God. You have the Father present, the Son present, and the Holy Spirit mentioned. And yet, notice, they are actually distinct. Now, people within the first two centuries of our movement tried dealing with this by saying, well, God decided to create. And so the very first two things he created was Jesus and the Spirit. Jesus and the Spirit are created beings, and they're like his two hands, and those two hands help create the universe. No, this is not what the Bible teaches. Let's remind ourselves once again. John says the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And not only that, God is love. God is eternal. God within himself always has been Father, Son, and Spirit, yet one God. So here's the different vantage point. Here's the nuance. How did the persons of the Trinity work together at creation? Well, John brings it home in John chapter 1, verse 2. Jesus was with God in the beginning. Through Jesus, all things were made. Without Jesus, nothing was made. That has been made. The very first act where God reveals himself in his entirety is in creation. The Father created, but how did the Father create? He did it through Jesus. Jesus is the agent of creation. Scientists tell us that there is about 100 billion stars in an average galaxy. There are 100 million galaxies so far discovered in known space. That means that there are 10 octillion stars. I did not just make up a number. It's true. That is 10 with 27 zeros behind it. And the Bible boldly proclaims that Jesus, who walked around 2,000 years ago, did that. Paul wrote these words about Jesus in Colossians 1.16. For in Jesus all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible, whether throne, power, ruler, or authority, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus all things hold together. Anyone want to say amen? Though God is creator. And like all great sequels, we see the full picture now. God the Father, through Jesus, created all things. God's creative capacity is expressed through the eternal word. And Jesus is responsible for creation. But how did he do it? By the breath of God. See, it's amazing when you read Hebrew, one of the names of Holy Spirit is breath. And now Psalm 33, 6 makes sense that God... By the word of God, the heavens were made. Jesus is that word. There are starry hosts by the breath of his mouth, the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're taking notes for Connect Group or for your own edification, here's, here, here's the critical thing. Creation is from the Father, through Jesus, by the Spirit. Every time we deal with the Trinity, you're going to hear this again and again and again. From through by. Actually, let's have a junior high moment. Let's all say it together. Ready? One, two, three. From through by. The universe is not eternal. God is eternal. 
The universe is not some random mistake because some big bang took place. No, this is the actual work of a beautiful, creating, loving artist. This is God's world. This is God's universe. This is not a mistake. God did not, though, create us and everything because he was lonely. Oh, don't misunderstand. God was not lonely. He did creation to bring glory to himself and to share in his love with us. His own eternal shared love within himself is now shared beyond the boundary of him to us. In creation, you see the beginning makeup of the entirety of God, but not just in creation. When God decided to rescue us, when God decided to come back for rebellious, prodigal children called humans, in that act of salvation, God also is fully revealed. I love what that great famed old bishop Anglican bishop from another century said, R.C. Ryle, it was the whole trinity at the beginning of creation that said, let us make man. It is now the whole trinity again, which at the beginning of the gospel says, let us now save man. How does this happen? The father sends the son, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in Jesus will not die but have eternal life, 1 John 4.10. And this is love. Oh, not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This sending to save, this sending to die was in the DNA of God before creation, before, before, before time was. This was already in his mind and heart. Listen to the words of John in the very last book in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, where he preaches and says something that is so countercultural, so bending yet so beautiful. When he says in Revelation 13:8, the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. See, our salvation was a decision within God within his inner life that has been there before time even existed. Before the world was, the sacrifice was already in God. As Jürgen Moltmann once said, no trinity is conceivable without the lamb, without the sacrifice of love, without the crucified son, for he is the slaughtered lamb glorified in eternity. The father gave Jesus up and gave Jesus over to deal with our sin. Now, let me camp here for a moment because I've mentioned this before, but this becomes one of the largest criticisms against Christianity, especially in the West. Oh, 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 this is child abuse. God the Father, who's out of control and needed to deal with something, coerced and forced his son to do something. Who would ever want to worship a God who's an abuser? That is absolutely true if you don't believe in the Trinity. But if you actually know how God has revealed himself, then though this is not child abuse, this is not a cosmic abuse. Listen, Jesus is God. The Father didn't have to convince Jesus to come get us. And the Spirit didn't have to be wooed or forced into a corner. Don't you understand? God so loved the world that he sent himself. The Father sends the Son. And the Father and the Son send the Spirit because they, he loves us. This is so important that we understand this. So the Father sends the Son, and then the Scripture says that the Father and the Son send the Spirit so we can actually embrace Jesus, know Jesus, and encounter him. John 14, 26, the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've taught you. What did Peter say in the very first Christian sermon, Acts 2, 33, exalted to the right hand of God, Jesus has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and here. So how does God's salvation work for us? What is each person's role? Well, God the Father calls you, 
Jesus, the Son, comes, takes your place, dies, rises, and stands in the gap for you, and the Holy Spirit shows you your sin, reveals Jesus, gives you the gift of faith, and takes you over the mantle to experience him. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, and God, or for God, chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Oh, the Father chose us. The Father called you. He elected you. The focus here is on God's own initiative, what God has already accomplished, what God will maintain, what God will never stop doing. And we need to embrace this. And I know many of you are uncomfortable with verses like this, but embrace. We are the focus of God the Father's holy love. We are the focus of his initiative. We are the focus of his accomplishments. We are the focus of his perfect maintenance. Before time existed, before the seven days of creation, before, 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 God with an himself decided that he would choose us, choose you and you and you and you and you and save you and restore you. And this is so significant because we go through life and life is difficult and dangerous and boring and seducing, but God the Father's election can never be changed. This is why we as Christians need to cry out, Lord, never let me go. Let my identity be be rooted in God the Father's call because nothing can change God the Father's mind when he's decided something. It's what Paul said in Romans 8, 29, for those God he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn from among many brothers and sisters. Now that word foreknew is is really important. Foreknew means a deep understanding. It's where we get our marriage language in the Bible, to know your husband and wife, to sleep, to have sex with them. That is not an intellectual exercise. It is an everything exercise. And this is that God knows us, not in a sexual sense, but knows us. And here's what he's trying to get across. God decided to know us. And it's not about foresight. This is not how the language reads. It's not like God knew we'd choose him, so he chose us based on, no, no, this is foreordination. I decide to choose you. Amos 3.2, for only you I've known, Israel, chosen, sympathized with, loved, out of all the families of the earth. Paul means God chose us beforehand. God has done everything needed to secure our eternal glory. And by the way, this is one of the most needed conversations in the church today because this doctrine kills the idea of religion and human boasting. Religion says, look at how profound I am. Look how many times I go to church. I go to Mecca. I I bow down five times a day. Look how much I've given to the poor. Me, 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 me. Look at what I have done to get God's attention. No, no. Christianity teaches we are all lost, sinners, needing saving. It takes God's loving action to bring us back from the dead. There is nothing we can do. Religion is a dead end. Human boasting says we can do and solve all of humans' troubles. No, we cannot. We need an external force to help us. But God the Father elects us into who? Jesus. In love, God predestines us for the adoption to sonship or daughtership through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. And in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace, which he has lavished on us. That word redemption means to be bought back as a slave, one who is in a slave market who cannot get out. And one comes in and liberates the person by paying the price. God the Father elects us. Jesus comes and stands in the gap for us. And through the work on the cross, He pays the debt and deals with sin, death, and the devil. And all the barriers between us and a holy God are removed. And we get to come back home. 
The Father calls us, the Son dies for us, and then, because God knows we will not get it beyond cognitive intellect, then the Spirit of God comes home among us. And it says in verse 13, when you believed, if you're a Christian, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Without the Holy Spirit, you do not belong. Without the Holy Spirit, you are not saved. Without the Holy Spirit, we stand condemned. Without the Holy Spirit, you are not a child of God. Oh, let me teach this today because it need. Listen, every human being has been made by God. We are children of God in that sense, but people who do not know Jesus Christ are not relational children of God. You cannot call God Father, let alone Dad, unless the Spirit of God who is in you, who allows you to have Jesus, and Jesus gives you access to the Father. No Spirit, no Jesus. No Jesus, no Father. No Father, no eternal life. No Father, no relationship. No Father, not being able to be fully human, to enjoy God and and be with Him forever. And what is the amazing result of God descending in salvation towards us? The amazing thing is this. He allows us, through him, to ascend back up. The great sin that Adam and Eve committed is they listened to that ancient serpent who still whispers to many of you today and says, you have the right to be God. We as humans gathered when we had one language and we built the Tower of Babel and declared, oh, we'll pierce the heavens because we have the right to do what we want. But now we see it takes God's love to help us ascend right. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, We have peace with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Justification means we are acquitted. We're in good standing. We've been made righteous. We were guilty, but through the work of Jesus, we're not guilty. We're put back into right relationship. All sin, past, present, and future is accounted for. And what is the result? We have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand If you were with us at Easter, you remember we talked a lot about that veil in the temple. Let me remind you, let me inform some of you for the first time. During the Jewish uh, time when the temple was in existence, there were multiple courts. The very first court was for non-Jews. Any non-Jew that wanted to worship the true living God, there was a court for them, and they could walk into that, but they could go no further. And then in front of that, there was a, a court for women. So if you were an Orthodox Jewish woman and you loved Yahweh, you could go a little farther from non-Jews, but not much more. And then there was another court in front of that, and that was the court for Orthodox men, and they could go farther than women. And then there was another court in another area where priests could go a little farther than, than the men. And then there was one last place, the Holy of Holies, where only once a year the great high priest right, could enter in on the Day of Atonement like we found out, and, and he had to be right, and they literally sewed bells into his tunic in case he was struck down dead. Here is what the Christian faith proclaims through the work of the Trinity. All the barriers are gone. Jews, non-Jews, women, men, boys, girls have unfettered access into God the Father's presence. That's why the book of Hebrews says this, draw near with, notice the word, confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need, but you will never understand the profundity, the beauty, the power of salvation if you do not believe in the Trinity. And this is not just some fact, some textbook theological conversation. God wants to be known and he knows we need help. That is why it says in Romans 5.5, 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
The spirit of Jesus takes us to Jesus. Jesus takes us to the Father. James Torrance put it this way, it is supremely in Jesus Christ that we see the double meaning of grace. Grace means that God gives himself to us as God, freely and unconditionally to be worshipped and adored. But grace also means that God comes to us in Jesus Christ as a man to do for us what we could not do. He offers a life of perfect obedience and worship and prayer to the Father. Here's the phrase, that we might be drawn by the Spirit into the communion with the Father through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we see God fully in creation, and we see God fully in salvation. One other place we see God in his his fulfillment, in, in his fullness, is when he empowers us to live a normal Christian life. We're going to spend a lot of time on this at the conference this week, but let me just do a little mini summary. I've preached this so many times before, but it matters that we get this so much. Paul wrote these words in Philippians 2, 5, your attitude should be the same as Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now those five words are groundbreaking. Who was in the very nature of God? Paul, an Orthodox Jew, writing this, says that Jesus shared the DNA of the uncreated God. In other words, he has to be God for there is only one that has that DNA. This is an absolute explicit call of Jesus being God. And yet, in the same breath that he says that Jesus is God, he says he did not consider equality with the Father something to be grasped. So confusing, unless you understand the Trinity. I love how the message was worked this out with Eugene Peterson. Jesus had equal status with the Father, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what, not at all. So how did Jesus do this? Well, this ancient song actually that was sung in churches it gives us the answer. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant become, became made in human likeness and Jesus being found in appearance as a man humbled himself and become obedient to death, even death on the cross and God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we always say at this, amen, right? You have the full picture of Jesus his pre-existence, incarnation, life, death on a cross, resurrection, ascension, and his forever exaltation. But this only makes sense from above when you look down below. The question we have been asking here for years is this. What did it look like for Jesus not to use his godness even though he remained God between Christmas and Easter? That's why you've got to pair Philippians 2 with his baptism. Luke 3.21, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And he was praying and heaven was open and the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. First, the Spirit is given to affirm Jesus' identity. And we have God in his fullness, the Father's voice, at the same time the Son of God in flesh, at the same time the Holy Spirit. That's why you can't be a modalist. It's not three masks or modes. God is three persons united. The most important thing we discover is this. The Holy Spirit was sent to empower and lead Jesus to do God the Father's will. Think about it. Up to this point in Jesus' life, he never healed, never cast out demons, never gave new teaching. At 12, he hung out in the temple. No one followed him. But right after the Holy Spirit lightened on Jesus, Jesus' ministry started, and we begin to see how Jesus walked with God and did God the Father's will. The third person of the Trinity empowers the second who was sent by the first. And then here's the light bulb moment. 
Without the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus would not have been able to bring the good news, would have not been able to do miracles, would have not been able to give the Sermon on the Mount, could not cast out demons. This is how Jesus chose not to cling to the advantages of his godness even though he remained God. He wanted to demonstrate to us what a normal Christian life looks like, sent and listening and obeying the Father, empowered by the Spirit. He never stopped being God, but he chose to show us what it looks like. Luke 4.1, this is, now this makes sense. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert. Verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. If you've grown up in a church, haven't you said before, how did Jesus not know when he was coming back? This is how. So Jesus is not just Savior and Lord, but he's our model. He's the pattern for us together and the church and us personally. Remember, the Bible calls us the church, the literal body of Christ. We are Jesus on earth. Put your phones down, not a heretic moment. Let me explain. Other than being God, speaking scriptures, dying for the sins of the world, we, as the united church on earth, have the same spiritual gifts he used, have the same spirit in our life, and because of that, we can do all the things Jesus did also. In creation, in salvation, and in empowerment, we all begin to see the work of the Trinity. And not only that, to live as a Christian, this is what we always need to get. It is from the Father, always through the Son, always by the Holy Spirit. And then the reverse becomes true. And by the Holy Spirit, we get to see and know and walk with Jesus. And through Jesus, we get unfettered access to the Father. Some of you are like, wow, that was interesting. So what? Well, let me take some few moments to explain why this is so fundamental, beautiful, epic, important for every one of us. If you're a Christian here today, you know God's name. There are hundreds of millions of people right now on earth who do not know God's name. Sit with it. Hundreds of millions, billions of people think God has a different name. Hundreds of millions don't know if he has a name at all and if he's out there. Hundreds of millions others use the right name but don't know the right name, the right God behind the name. When is the last time you as a Christian just said, thank you that you decided to let me know not only that you exist, but who you are? Baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know the name of God. You know he's a good father. You know he's the eternal savior. You know he's the profound comforter. When devotionally have you just sat with God in his fullness and said, thank you for telling me your name. Thank you that you're not a closed secret. You're an open secret. And that you would ever choose me. Just thank you. This leads me to my second point. Two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I was walking by my son's room and he had a little friend over named Mohammed who belongs to an Orthodox Muslim family. And they were hanging out doing what six, six-year-old boys do. Isn't it amazing? Doesn't matter your culture, background, religion. Six-year-old boys, exactly the same. Boom. Crazy, smelling, throwing things, perfect, beautiful. So I'm walking by and I overhear this very intense little conversation happening while they're playing Beyblades or something. Some of you are like, what are those? It's okay, don't worry. And it says... My son says, what are you terrified of? Without 
a heartbeat. Mohammed said, I am terrified of God. Because if I, this is a six-year-old boy, do not live a perfect life, he can throw me into the eternal fire and there's nothing I can do about it. Well, I walked into the room at that moment. (laughs) And I said, Mohammed, I'm so glad you're in our home and you're most welcome. I said, we're followers of Esau in this family. We're followers of Jesus. And I understand that God is holy and I understand we deserve hell. But because of the work of Jesus, we know that God is not just holy, God is love. See, this is what we've got to get. If God's just holy, we're all screwed. If God is holy, we deserve hell and death because we rebelled. If God is just just and holy, we're undone. There's nothing we can do. And it's the same problem in the reverse. Everyone in the West wants God just to be loved. Really? Then what about all the justice that needs to get worked out in the world? Everyone wants love until there's a rape or a violence or a mass shooting or what happened last week with a minivan. Let me tell you something. God has to be holy and love to bring balance to all things. And God, our God, is holy love. We are condemned and at the same time in our condemnation because he is love. He sends the result of love, Jesus, and he dies for us. There is going to be nothing that will not be dealt with. All justice will be resolved, either on the body of Jesus or at judgment day. But God is holy and love. And when is the last time you marveled as a Christian that you're not like Muhammad, wondering and preening and wondering, like, no, you don't have to worry anymore because Jesus, who was sent by the Father, Father has covered you and the Holy Spirit has revealed Jesus to you and the Father is holy love. Do you see the difference? It's so powerful. Don't take this for granted any longer. Hundreds of millions of people don't have what you take for granted when you pray over your meal at night. Unfettered access into holy love. But the most critical thing we need to wrestle down today is actually what I primed the prompt for last week. We need to be okay with all of God. So this is going to be uncomfortable. You're like, uncomfortable? This is going to be uncomfortable? What was that? I know. Okay. God wants to be known. And yet so many of us sitting here, sitting in other places, at all our listen, listen, We are uncomfortable with parts of God. Persons. Lots of us like Jesus. Some of us like the Holy Spirit. Some of us are good with the Father. Oh, it's even true in denominations, by the way. Just think about it. Pentecostals lean towards the Spirit. Evangelicals lean towards Jesus. Anglicans and Catholics lean towards the Father. If you don't believe me, just look at our architecture. By the way, church architecture always reflects your theology. What do the Anglicans and Catholics give us? Cathedrals. You walk in and they're majestic and looming and stunning and composed, transcendent. They lead you in silence into what? The awe of God. Look at our church. This building, a bunch of you hanging out today at high schools. Hey, Jesus is your brother. He's your buddy. Have a coffee. Latte? It's okay. Comfortable. Pentecostals, fire tunnels, altars. Right? Right? Salvation Army, the mercy seat, if you grew up in that tradition. Listen, family. 
One God, three persons. We have to be okay with him. So here's the healing moment. Who are you afraid of? Who are you distant from within the Godhead? Do you like Jesus a lot, but the Father seems distant and scary because you got dad issues? Good. You say, John, I don't know what to do. I mean, years of counseling and I still can't break through. Ready? Yep. Devotionally this week in your connect group or by yourself, you go directly to Jesus Christ and you say, Jesus, you kept telling me in the scriptures you came to show the Father. Oh, by the way, side note, if you only end up with Jesus, you're always in trouble. When's the last time you heard? When would you ever think a pastor would say that? If you stop with Jesus, you're in trouble. What did Jesus say? I've come to reveal who? The Father. Whose kingdom is it? The Father's. Not his. His dad's. So if you've got a real problem with the Father, you can't relate to him, he's scary to you, this affects your spiritual walk. This affects the joy you have. This affects your understanding of love and relationships. And all. Listen, go to Jesus and say, you said you could reveal the Father perfectly. You are literally the embodiment and image of the Father. I need you to give me a fresh revelation of the Father so I can be healed and know you in your entirety. Others of you are like, oh man, I'm afraid of the Holy Spirit. Some of you have been in this church for years and you're like, John, I love and I'm terrified with what God's doing. This, we're, we're not like Steeple Hill or Crothers Creek. Oh, I know. And you're like, the Holy Spirit scares me. Okay. He's your everything, by the way, as a Christian. But here's what you need to do. You don't run. You don't freeze. You go to the Father and the Son. And this is the prayer you pray this week. Father and Son, you say that you send the Spirit. And the Bible says that the Spirit is everything to me as a Christian. So now, don't send less of him. Send more of him into my life. So I can't avoid him or grieve him or push him in a corner. I want to be literally drowned in the Spirit of God so I will know he is good. And there's others of you are like, I'm good with the Father and the Spirit, but Jesus, I, like, why do I really need him? I'm good, I'm religious. Huh. So this is your prayer. <laughs> Holy Spirit, you are called the Spirit of Christ. Holy Spirit, open my eyes to Jesus in his glory, in his power, in his humility, and open my eyes to my need for him. When God is worshipped, everything changes. And so many of us who've walked with God for so long have not experienced a deeper, wider, longer experience of God because actually we don't want to encounter him in his fullness. God is inviting this church. Hear me, please. God is inviting C4 Church into a season, not of miracles or healing, no, no, into encountering him in his wholeness. So would you stand across all our church and would you pray these things number one we openly unashamedly willingly declare there is only one God and the Father is found through Jesus and Jesus is found through the Spirit we confess right now that God is one and yet three and we worship him as he truly is Second of all, Lord, thank you that you showed us who you are 
Thank you for the love that you've poured into our hearts. Thank you for calling us and dying for us and rising for us and standing in the gap for us and sending your spirit. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you that not one person in this church, not one person who knows Jesus has to fear what's on the other side because we know who God is. Death didn't win. Age doesn't win. God does. Thank you that this is not a mistake. Thank you our world is not a mistake. Thank you the universe isn't a mistake. It's not random. There is purpose. But now, holy God, come. For us who are deeply afraid, hurt, distant, neutral, apathetic towards the Father, Jesus Christ, reveal the Father. To we who don't understand the need or want or closeness of Jesus, Holy Spirit, reveal Jesus to us. For many of us who are still afraid of the Holy Spirit because we are conservative and want to be in control, Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit so we know him beautifully. Oh God, one God, as we've prayed so many times before, do not relent until all you want to do in this church is accomplished. All glory be to God the Father. All glory be to God the Son. All glory be to the Holy Spirit. Three and one. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.